Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special bonus program from our COVID-19 edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. Today's program is the first in a five-part series we're calling COVID at Work Straight Talk. And in this group of shows, we've assembled expert lawyers from across the country to help us sift through the challenges facing businesses today as we move through the difficulties of getting back to the way things were, or more accurately, how business leaders are going to navigate through the challenges of what's going to be the new normal of business. Throughout this series, we've assembled panels of experts on topics that range from health and safety issues and the impact of OSHA compliance on going back to the workplace, how to handle sensitive landlord-tenant negotiations. Then we're going to touch on details regarding business interruption insurance and how to substantiate and document claims as a result of the current situation. We'll also bring together special groups of experts to address key issues pertaining to managing employee benefits, retirement plans, and finally look straight on at how bankruptcy is being addressed, not only as it relates to challenges we may be having with our own businesses and long-term viability, but how to work through this situation when it pertains to our vendors, clients, and customers, who are also struggling financially from the difficulty of this pandemic. Today's program will center on the subject of health and safety and OSHA compliance, and moderating our discussion is Steve Hirschfeld, founding partner of Hirschfeld Kramer in California. Steve is also the CEO of the Employment Law Alliance. As a bonus, we had the chance to survey some of our listening audience in advance of the discussion to gather their questions, and the panel will be addressing these in their commentary. Let's join Steve as he introduces the program and moderates the discussion. Thanks, Pete. So protecting the safety and health of your workforce will ultimately determine your company's ability to withstand this pandemic. Given how decentralized the government's response to the pandemic has been, it's not a shock that employers and employees are struggling with fully understanding what steps must be taken to create a safe and healthy work environment. Thankfully, we're really lucky today to have two national experts on workplace safety and health we're going to provide us with a comprehensive insight on exactly the type of things you need to know. Bill Wayhoff from Steptoe and Johnson and Steve Ricca from Bon Shenick and King are really truly national experts in this topic. And so my job as a moderator is going to be really easy. A, because they know their stuff. And B, because we had over 100 questions pre-submitted by you folks. And Bill and Steve are working those questions into their presentation. So I'm going to have a very easy job. What I'm going to try to do as best I can is listen to them carefully, perhaps ask some follow-up questions, and then use questions that you're submitting as well. In terms of what they're going to be covering, there are a couple of key points. First, they're going to talk a little bit about the landscape from a broad perspective and how OSHA, federal and state regulations, are providing, thankfully, some practical insight on how to protect your workplace. Uh, the second thing they're going to focus on is a plan. You need to have to be successful here, develop a plan that's not one-size-fits-all, but something that's customized to your workplace to ensure that you've got the right safety and health in mind as you reopen or continue to operate your premises. Then you're going to hear a little bit on the ground from New York. Of course, New York, we all know, is the epicenter was for uh, the pandemic, and we're going to hear some insight on what's been happening there and what steps some businesses are taking to reopen. 
Then we'll hear a little bit about some specifics with industries in mind uh, to get an idea of how these rules and the OSHA standards apply. And then finally, the emphasis is going to be on continuing to plan and continue to improve your workplace as we get more guidance and insight on this virus. That's the game plan this morning. Got a lot to cover. Without any further ado, Bill Wayhoff. With all of these sources, like Steve says, we have to have a plan. Each employer needs to have a plan. Some employers might be one or two pages, others it might be quite lengthy. We have to remember that the general duty clause, which is an OSHA law in the United States, requires that each employer furnish to each of their employees employment and a place of employment which are free from recognized hazards that are causing or likely to cause death or serious physical harm. So sometimes in the news you hear, well, there's no OSHA standard on COVID-19, but uh, certainly um, the OSHA, OSHA can certainly cite employers based on the general duty clause. And um, in California, where there's no general duty clause, um, injury and illness prevention programs are required, and this, what we're saying today would be folded into those. So planning is something that requires time, obviously, but you need to take immediate uh, measures, immediate interim measures, and those are really quite well known, you know, the personal hand washing, distancing, that sort of thing. So don't wait until you have your plan complete to take immediate interim measures. So OSHA wants us, federal OSHA, U.S. OSHA, wants us to have an infectious disease preparedness and response plan, which is a written document. And so we see here the occupational risk pyramid. So the first thing we have to do is categorize the risk. Second thing is to assess the risks in our workplace and jobs and then prescribe controls of various kinds uh, to meet those risks. So how might we determine which category applies? First of all, very high and high exposure risk, as you can see on the left, healthcare workers, mortuary workers, emergency response workers, particularly the very high would be those with known exposure to individuals who have had COVID-19. And then those at high risk would be, again, the same set of folks that have suspected, uh, dealt with suspected patients uh, who have that exposure or COVID-19. So the healthcare industry and those industries require extensive uh, measures. We're going to really focus uh, most of the time on medium and lower, but we can touch on those. So the medium exposure risk would be workers with high frequency interaction with the general public. Um, or think about vendors, think about contractors, think about multi-employer uh, work sites. How about companies that use a lot of temporary workers? You know, so they might fall into this medium exposure risk because a fairly extensive part of the workforce um, 
really they might not have complete control over, but certainly those working in schools, restaurants, retail establishments, travel and mass transit, or other crowded environments would be in a medium exposure risk. And then the lower exposure risk, and I'm a lawyer, so I apologize, I'm conservative. I would say that would be a manufacturing plant in a small community where there's very few or, or no COVID-19 cases uh, would be lower exposure risk. I think almost everyone would follow uh, into the medium. But interestingly, when OSHA first issued these a couple months ago, they thought that office workers would be the lo a lower exposure risk. And of course, some of the thinking about this has evolved. So what are the key elements then in uh, hey, preparing? Bill, can I interrupt for a second? Uh, sure. I, I just wanted to uh, highlight uh, the fact that within an organization, there can be various risk levels. Uh, Bill was just talking about office workers. Obviously, there are businesses that have production office, distribution, shipping. Um, employers have to look at their organizations holistically and and group uh, activities on a risk basis. Uh, that makes sense from a safety perspective. It also makes sense from a cost perspective. Uh, another uh, issue that I will be circling around to at the end of this presentation today is the fact that your geographic location can also uh, impact how you plan. For example, in an area of higher uh, population and concentration where public transportation is prevalent, employers have to think about how their workers are getting into the workplace and what, if any, measures they need to implement. So uh, back to you, Bill. And uh, yep. it, it sounds like you wanted to start talking about some of the key ingredients of the plan. Well, before we move on to that, uh, Steve, I want, I want to ask you, so in other words, in those various parts of an organization that you've outlined, would those be subparts of the company's overall plan then, or they, the organization's plan? They very well could be. I mean, the, the there's, uh, you know, to the extent that there may not be an extraordinary amount of detail in the existing OSHA guidance, there's also a lot of flexibility and room for improvisation. I think that uh, we all heard the phrase, one size does not fit all. Uh, that holds true here. I think that um, uh, with the professionals uh, who will be working uh, on these plans, uh, looking at the engineering and safety aspects, uh, we're going to be seeing a lot of clever approaches, I think, to minimizing risk in the workplace. Very well. Well, now it would be good to outline the key recommendations for preparedness and response. And Obviously, the first item is infection prevention and uh, sanitation. Sanitation is, you know, we've, we've had cleaning folks in all of our organizations for forever. But really now we're talking about sanitation. And that may be wiping uh, surfaces and allowing them some time to the substances we put on there, the products, to uh, kill uh, the viruses or other uh, pathogens. So social distancing, remote working, uh, flexible hours, risk communication, staggering of, of uh, shifts, having people come in at different times using different areas of the
plant, for example, uh, not just the locker rooms for changing. You know, there's a lot of different things that, to be productive, we may not want to distance our workstations. So then we want to have perhaps something uh, in between, and that is all part of infection prevention. And then employee health screening. Indeed, um, during the crisis, uh, that is a potential measure that the employer can take when employees come into the workplace uh, to take temperature readings and ask the employees questions about whether or not they've been exposed to anyone who has or suspected to have COVID-19. And that is uh, permissible during this time, according to the EOC. But when the pandemic is declared to be over, uh, that is still going to be a, an examination that the employer would then have to produce evidence that that is a business necessity. Then there are sick leave policies that are flexible and consistent with public health guidance. And that's really beyond the scope of what we're going to cover today as far as sick leave, but workplace specific controls tailored to self-diagnosed exposure risk levels are what we would like to uh, cover today. Hey, and Bill, Steve, before you, you go have... on to the next slide, Bill, this is Steve Hirschfeld. Um, sure. I know one of the questions that I've been getting is uh, when we talk about employee health screening, are there any thoughts both practically and legally about what you do if you've got employees who aren't living with people who have been exposed, but they're living with people who are in the top category of potential exposure? So in other words, uh, the husband is a nurse at a general hospital or doctor or some other health care provider. Is there any thought to what needs to be done, if anything, or can you screen out employees who may not have it themselves, their partner may not have it, but their partner may be working in a high-risk category? Well, uh, first of all, we'd have to really look at what what that in the interactive process bringing people back to work if um, that comes to light of course that information has to be kept um, private but really Steve the question is to the employee not specific about you know relatives at home or specific knowledge the permitted question according to the EEOC is whether or not they have been with anyone who has been diagnosed with COVID or suspected of having uh, COVID. So I would say on that fact pattern alone, uh, that individual would not, it would not be permissible to screen them out. It's just like uh, dive, you know, someone that has, has a health condition, there might be necessary accommodations. But those are the kinds of things that, that uh, require analysis from an employment law perspective, and that's um, about all we can comment on that today, but we could follow up on that question. Before we move on to administrative and engineering controls, I, I, I know that there are a number of uh, business sectors that are very concerned about the fact that uh, social distancing in some instances can only be accomplished by reducing the number of customers you serve. Uh, uh, the restaurant industry would be a prime example of that. Uh, it's obviously very troubling to think that 
Um, in some instances, you need to operate at less than full capacity in order to maintain social distancing guidelines. So uh, really at a very fundamental level, depending on what sort of business you are in, um, the, the volume of uh, customers you serve will be directly impacted at least until uh, the pandemic unfolds and restrictions are relaxed or lifted. Uh, so Bill, do, would you like to go on to the next topic? Well, I think that uh, before we, we leave that, we have to remember that there is a specific guidance that will get to specific alerts in various industries that uh, provide uh, checklists and what have you for employers. But I think now we'd like to talk about the hierarchy of controls um, because when we look at, we have analyzed our risks. We have assessed our risks as part of our plan. And now we have to determine, you know, what, what measures are we going to take? And engineering controls, administrative controls, work practice controls, including PPE, personal protective equipment, are the kind of controls that we're talking about. And it's really a good idea to put those in categories to keep them organized, to keep your thinking organized in formulating the plan. Because physical barriers such as sneeze guards really are considered engineering controls. If we have a medium risk environment that we've talked about before, then face masks and also limiting customer access to workplaces would be suggested administrative controls. Work practice controls might include uh, having employees distance even if they're wearing face coverings. Now, this grid here that we're looking at says some PPE is required. And at this point, I think it's worth noting that face coverings are not considered personal protective equipment. Um, they're not considered respirators. But OSHA may have some minimum obligations anyway in mind for employers, but they haven't actually issued those yet. Uh, but they, there are uh, kind of some hints in the meatpacking guidelines that they just issued this week. Now, when we have healthcare settings, we have uh, other settings, nursing homes, places like that, we might be considering air handling systems, isolation rooms, um, and biosafety level precautions. Uh, certainly drive-through pharmacies are pretty prevalent anyway, but now perhaps uh, people should, companies should consider simply handling prescriptions by drive-through uh, rather than having folks come up to the counter. Um, so personal protective equipment in the high and very high uh, categories is very extensive. Gowns, gloves, face shields, goggles, respirators, you know, protocols to, to, to don gloves, to don your gown, to don your face shield could involve using two or three or more pairs of gloves and having um, sanitation in between. So when we think about controls, we should in our plan 
uh, have those categorized. Steve, do you have any comments about that? Yes, uh, you, you mentioned that OSHA's issued alerts uh, and checklists that are uh, business sector specific, industry specific. I just like to remind everybody that OSHA has a COVID webpage uh, it, that posts uh, in pretty uh, comprehensive fashion all of the alerts that have been issued. To my knowledge, to date, there have been OSHA alerts slash checklists issued for construction, manufacturing, retail, restaurant, food and beverage, and package delivery. Um, Bill and I have had a number of conversations about our experiences with OSHA and how they go about enforcing things. Uh, when there's an inspection or when you are faced with a questionnaire, um, really the bottom line minimum requirements uh, and, and the starting point for an OSHA inspection and assessment will be whether you're checking all the boxes on these particular uh, lists. So they they are basic, they are straightforward, but they're very useful. They they help to define the sorts of things that an OSHA inspector would, would focus on and probably likewise also uh, form uh, a, a means of evaluation by the state you happen to be operating in when it considers uh, reopening uh, policy, something that I will touch upon during the discussion of what's going on in New York. Uh, so uh, Bill also mentioned the fact that the meat and poultry processing industry has been the subject of recent fairly detailed guidance. Uh, that's also available on the OSHA website. When you look at it, you will see that there are graphic, you know, visual depictions of different ways to go about social distancing, whether it would be uh, physical staggering of worker locations versus uh, shift variations versus barriers, uh, which will all be need, need to be taken into consideration. Uh, as an overall exercise in minimizing risk. Uh, as, as we all know, uh, PPE is one of the least effective ways of uh, preventing an infection. Eliminating the risk in the first place is one of the most effective ways, and that's hence the, you know, the moniker hierarchy of controls. OSHA looks at things that way, and so should employers. So in that regard, Steve, would you say that the meat, I, I realize a lot of the uh, participants are not in the meat packing business, but uh, did you see anything in the meat packing guidelines that would help give guidance uh, from an engineering uh, standpoint? Absolutely. So, for example, if you're looking at a, a meat processing line with workers shoulder to shoulder, uh, it doesn't, uh, it, it's, it's easy to sort of look at that as uh, an illustration of one, what one might do in, on a production floor or, or a a workspace where there are workstations uh, that have a certain dimension. You could obviously uh, consider PPE uh, as a way of, of, of achieving uh, worker protection. Barriers between workstations and barriers between workers on a meat processing line, uh, it, it, the, the whole concept transfers over well. The question is, you know, is it easier said than done? This is a balancing act. You have cost, you have production rates, you have flexibility of the workspace. Uh, there may be instances where CDC-driven guidelines evolve. You can be closer, you have to be further away. It's, it's really uh, an engineering uh, and uh, operational uh, puzzle that needs to be worked out on a site-specific basis. But there are certainly commonalities among all of the 
industry-specific OSHA alerts, and there are commonalities. Uh, the, the meat and poultry processing guidelines are jointly issued by CDC and OSHA, and, and CDC's uh, webpage uh, really is a starting place. It's, it, OSHA will rely on its own checklist, but it's heavily informed by what CDC guidelines uh, depict. And the CDC guidelines inform uh, the types of questions that one can ask employees about whether they've been exposed and what their symptoms have been and for how long. Likewise, there are all sorts of, uh, if one is looking for ideas and struggling for solutions, uh, the OSHA really does direct employers to keep an eye on OSHA, on CDC developments as closely as OSHA developments. So the way this can come up is that how in the world would OSHA come to our our workplace if they only have um, X number of, in, of compliance officers? And the way this comes up is that an employee will file a complaint. And OSHA will then, if it's a COVID-19 complaint and it's not a healthcare setting, um, or other very high or high risk setting, OSHA is likely to send out a rapid response questionnaire, a request for information. And the employer will have five days or so to answer that. So the way this happens is then, depending upon the employer's answer, that's the decision OSHA makes whether or not they're going to send out a compliance officer. So that's why it's really important that um, the employer have a plan ahead of time, because to try to, to formulate a plan in five days or three days or something like that would be uh, very difficult. And um, having the plan then really shortens uh, the answer back to OSHA and greatly lessens the time that they'll want to spend enforcement time with your organization. They're likely going to go on to other things. So when we, when we look at that, though, we can't lose sight of existing OSHA standards. You know, when we think about existing OSHA standards, we think about personal protective equipment, record-keeping requirements, general environmental controls, basic housekeeping, now, you know, sanitation, um, hazard communication. So. We'd like to spend a little time here now on especially personal protective equipment because everyone is being encouraged to wear face coverings. Um, there are states in which face coverings are required except under certain circumstances in the employment setting on the part of employees. Um, patrons might not wear them. Some companies are requiring patrons to wear them. Uh, a famous uh, uh, company, uh, Costco, is, is having that requirement. So the question becomes, is that, if my employee is wearing a face covering, is that personal protective equipment? We had a lot of questions about that. And so on page 10, I, I hate to be specific, but on page 10 of the of the OSHA document uh, for the response plan, they point out that face coverings are not personal protective equipment. And the reason for that is, 
is because face coverings aren't designed to protect those around us. They're designed, they're not designed to protect the wearer, excuse me, they're designed to protect those around us. So consequently, since they're not really going to protect the wearer because they're not airtight, they're not fit tested, you know, the procedures haven't gone through, they're not even manufactured. Uh, they're just pieces of cloth, but yet they will keep droplets from going on to other people and that's the purpose of those. Therefore, they're not really considered personal protective equipment. However, it, as well in the meatpacking guidelines, here we go back there, I think I mentioned before that there are uh, guidelines about face coverings. And you can imagine in that industry, face coverings get soiled, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we, we're not, we don't want folks touching their face coverings, the outside, uh, while they're on. And so the employer does have a minimum responsibility to, if an employee's face covering is soiled or whatever, to have alternatives at the workplace. Now, in an office environment, that's pretty unlikely to happen. So it depends upon the environment, and that's just something that should be factored into the plan. Steve, do you have any comments on PPE? Uh, I, I guess uh, I would add that, in, for example, in New York State, uh, I'll be talking about executive orders uh, exercised by our governor of emergency powers to affect laws, one of which was an order for uh, work for employers to provide face coverings to employees who are in contact with the public. And so that was interpreted by the New York State Department of Health as um, requiring face coverings when, not when there are uh, close proximity among workers, but when customers come in or vendors. And what that does is it adds a layer of, it complicates somewhat the uh, analysis of what an employer's obligations are. Uh, for example, we know under the PPE standards that voluntary respirator use, respirators are PPE and 95 is the term we've all been hearing. If employees, voluntarily use respirators in the workplace, OSHA regulations directly address that in 1910-134. There's a sub-provision that talks about uh, an obligation of an employer to provide Appendix D information for voluntary respirator use and so forth. But when it comes to face masks, which are not PPE and which are not governed by existing regulatory standards, uh, uh, things become a little bit more uh, fluid. So I, I guess what I would say about uh, face masks in general is that because they are designed to protect those around you and not necessarily yourself, um, they are favored by the CDC, they're favored by uh, public health officials, and employers should be flexible about their use in the workplace and factor them into their long-range planning because it's, it's something that is currently outside of regulatory standards. Um, and however, depending on what state you're in or what your local uh, uh, county uh, laws might dictate, uh, that has to be considered when you're putting together your plan, not just OSHA publication 3990, but also local and state requirements. Hey, Steve, one of our audience um, participants has a follow-up question. She wants to be sure. Are we saying that N95 masks are considered PPE or not? 
they are considered PPE, well, but they are not generally governed by, um, they haven't been implicated, at least in New York State, by New York State executive orders. There's no requirement to wear N95s in New York State in response to the COVID pandemic, but they no. are regulated, particularly if they are required for the particular workplace hazards. If a N95 is required in a workplace, to protect against hazards presented by that workplace, they would be governed by the Respiratory Protection Plan standards. Thanks. Right, so exactly right. And so let's say that someone happens to wear an N95 into your workplace where you're requiring face coverings, okay? So well, let's say it's an office to make it easy. So there's no, there's no particulates to protect that employee against. They're wearing the N95 um, to protect others from them. It's a face covering. It's a requirement. So that's really not considered personal protective equipment. It would not be considered uh, voluntary wearing of respirators. On the other hand, if there is some sort of particulate um, hazard uh, the employee uses to wear, let's say an N95 or an N99 or 100, which are superior, you know, superior, uh, then there might be the implication of needing to provide them with Appendix uh, D if it's a voluntary wearing. On the other hand, if the employer requires uh, employees to wear um, respirators in the workplace, there would need to be a complete respiratory protection program uh, that involves uh, all the elements that um, are, you know, selection, fitting, training, inspection, use, cleaning, maintenance, uh, and storage. So uh, those are the those are kind of the delineations, and hopefully that answered the question. Yeah, and then Bill to follow up uh, on that. Um, the recommendation with respect to those that are working in white-collar jobs that are in an office together, whether individual offices or in a group setting, there's no requirement in a situation like that for N95, correct? I have not seen anywhere, anytime, anyone requiring N95, uh, any governmental entity requiring or, or Department of Health requiring an N95 in that setting. Now, what they may require, though, are face coverings, which is right. a, is a different is a different thing. You know, you bring in your face covering with your favorite uh, sports team uh, on it uh, uh, from, let's say, Toronto or somebody like some place like that, and uh, uh, then that's a face covering, not a respirator, and it's not even personal protective equipment covered by 132 of the uh, OSH general industry uh, standard. Okay, so that's why it's very important when 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 we talk about PPE, we are not talking about these face coverings, because if an employee brings in personal protective equipment to uh, guard against a workplace, uh, their perceived workplace, if it's more than a dust mask, now dust masks wouldn't apply, but you would then have to. Uh, think about a respiratory protection uh, response of some sort with Appendix D or uh, a program if it was required. 
So, so to follow up on that, we've got another question. Uh, there's a lot of interest in this issue about face masks versus N- N95s and, and so forth. And, and Dave's got a question here about, you know, let's say you don't require people to wear N95s, respirators, but employees just voluntarily decide they want it. They feel better for whatever reason, and they bring them in. Do you see that as an issue? Well, it's certainly an issue for analysis in the workplace. The, if, the, if they're bringing them in in response to the fact that an N95 might be more comfortable than a cloth uh, face covering, then the N95, there's no magic in the N95 itself. It's, if the purpose of it is, is to protect others and not the wearer, then it's the same analysis. It's a face covering. It would not be a respirator or so you'd have to look at what the uh, what the hazard is that the employee is trying to uh, protect and indeed the I, I think it's more bill I think it's more the the level of paranoia that people have out there and yeah. there's so much misunderstanding about what you really ought to be using and so you're yeah. going to have employees I think the question is you're gonna have employees that are so extra sensitive about this and it's not meant to to disparage them but people just are afraid so you may have employees in a work environment a tech company for example where an employee just goes i understand everything you just said and i don't really need anything more than a simple face covering with the 49ers on there but i i'm showing up with an n95 and they think right. somehow it's good better for them right um right it, it, what's the practical suggestion they certainly can do it it's obviously not necessary well, the practical suggestion is that that's a face covering, not right. a respirator or anything. And let me just say that there's N95 is not the if I were going to wear try to wear a respirator to protect against COVID-19, I would not be putting on an N95. Okay, so you got to remember that an N95 is not that high a level of to begin with. So, so that's why this whole this whole thing, you know, is is it's really a face covering to protect others. I know we I know we have a lot else to cover, but let me just ask a couple more questions because they're coming fast and furious. Just to point that's, of consideration between between Steve and Bill, a surgical mask that is not a PPP, correct? Yeah, it's 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 not personal protective equipment because a surgical mask protects the patient, not the wearer. And the, here, here's the, the, the key thing. If it's airtight, okay, if, if it's airtight and won't let air in on the margins, then it could be, it could qualify under certain circumstances as PPE or a respirator, but it would depend on the hazard. So surgical masks are not airtight. They are not, uh, they are not a, a respirator they're not, I wouldn't even call them personal protective equipment because they're designed to protect the patient. All right, one more question. Sure, I know you guys have a lot more to cover. Get, sure. One sure. more question. I know we get a lot more to cover, but the, a couple of people have asked a question about why has there not been any comment about face shields? What's the story on that? Well, I, I think that face shields could be uh, effective to a degree, but if you think about uh, face shields, um, I think that uh, they are probably less protective of others than uh, than a face covering because they may not contain all the droplets, you know, on a sneeze or whatever, unless they're, you know, 
really big, and then they're really heavy. You know, they're kind of heavy. And, and you put them on with a, with a band around your head, okay? So you may think a face covering is uncomfortable, but after an hour in a, in a face shield, which, you know, I've worn, depending upon the, you know, it could be a very light uh, shield, and then maybe it wouldn't be bad, but those get a little uncomfortable. And usually in industry, they're only worn for temporary uh, hazards, like if there's chips flying off a machine or something like that. But to, you know, to kind of wear one every day or all day, yeah, it'd be a little uncomfortable, but uh, they could be considered as one piece uh, of protecting uh, others. I think that we we also have another important issue, and that is record keeping, because a lot of uh, employers have questions about record keeping. You know, what if I have a COVID-19 case in my uh, workplace, my plant, do I have to record that? Now, the answer is that OSHA uh, has exceptions. The, the record keeping rule you may not agree with it, but it's, it's, it's administratively pretty clear. If something is not exempt as an illness from the record-keeping rule, then, then it has to be analyzed, okay? So, for example, the flu, influenza is exempt. You don't have to record the flu, at least up to now. Now, maybe that'll change, but, um, but COVID-19 is not exempt. So, as a consequence, it requires some analysis. But just because it's not exempt doesn't mean it's automatically recordable, okay? So in other words, we would need objective evidence, according to OSHA guidance, objective evidence that the COVID-19 case actually was contracted at our workplace before we would want, you know, want to record that or need to record that. You know, on the other hand, if we have a lot of cases and things like that, then that that might uh, then say, yes, we need to have those recorded. What about reporting hospitalization uh, of a COVID-19 uh, positive employee? You know, that comes up. You know, obviously, if it's a work-related COVID-19 case, we would have to report that hospitalization in 24 hours under the OSHA reporting rule that became effective 1-1-2015. So that is something to keep in mind, or if there's a COVID-19 work-related re death, then we would have to report that within eight hours uh, if it occurred within 30 days of the original work exposure. So those are that's kind of the broad brush of the recording and reporting requirements, but employers, that's caused a lot of uh, concern among employers regarding, uh, rec you know, recording uh, as an illness, COVID-19 cases, and that really, um, I think it would be, unless there is a an outbreak in your facility, I think it'd be very unusual that you would record a COVID-19 case. So, I guess one issue I'd, I'd highlight with respect to the general environmental controls uh, under the current 1910 subpart J is the fact that uh, employers as part of their uh, infectious disease prevention and response plans have to consider cleaning the facility uh, 
on 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 what schedule uh, and what locations. I, I guess as sort of a common sense observation, areas where employees congregate, uh, washrooms, uh, eating areas, uh, meeting rooms, these are the sorts of places where uh, you're going to have a higher concentration of people. Certainly everything needs to be developed on a facility-specific basis. But in the context of figuring out where to clean and how to clean, I would just note that EPA has a list of uh, chemicals which are approved for use as disinfecting agents. We're not just talking about keeping a, a workplace clean, we're talking about killing COVID virus. So uh, employers should keep in mind that these resources are available. They're published on the OSHA website. They're published on EPA's website. It's commonly referred to as EPA's list N. Uh, so with that, Bill, shall we move on to New York State, or is there anything else you'd oh, like to talk I, about? Uh, yeah, I think I just have a couple little things. Uh, one thing is that, you know, we have certain environments that are really kind of hard because we have people who a lot, you know, there are a lot of workplaces today that don't even have the the separating uh, pods in, in the office. They They just have desks right next to each other. And so it causes a lot of concern, and so... You know, gee, you know, how are we going? You know, you've said, oh, six feet. Uh, people have to be distanced and this sort of thing. How do we deal with that? Well, I think that in those circumstances, we need to look at the barriers that, you know, the clear barriers we're seeing in the retail market between those employees. Now, those can be, you know, a little expensive. Well, maybe you can't get a hold. Maybe there's a shortage. So six millimeter plastic, you may have to get by with that as an interim measure. So don't let perfect be the enemy of good on this. You know, do something to uh, put a barrier between those employees working in close proximity. Now, in a manufacturing plant with a row of hot, uh, you know, presses like for rubber or whatever in the rubber industry, you know that plastic or plexiglass isn't really that great of a great of a solution. So you might be looking at um, uh, glass that is unbreakable, that is tempered, you know that sort of thing, rather than the plastic. But the fact is, is that that you can still have folks working in close proximity, and we don't want to get so uh, concerned about the six feet of distance that we don't think about engineering controls that we could put in, it could still allow people to see each other and still allow people to communicate, but be shielded from sneezing and that sort of thing. And then hazard communication, just a quick note on that. We have to make sure that as we use these kind of, you know, the, the, uh, the CDC as well as the EPA uh, came up with a list of effective uh, products like 335 or 40 products, and it's it's uh, it'll be in the reference that you receive after this, along with a lot of other references. And that uh, list shows that we really need to be careful about our own employees doing the sanitation. We we might need personal protective equipment for that, so we need to look at the safety data sheets. For those, even if we buy them at uh, Home Depot or something, we need to have a safety data sheet or look at the uh, the label 
and have appropriate PPE um, for that those employees. Otherwise, we might receive a hazard communication citation, uh, which would not be good. So, Steve, I really I know a lot of people are interested in uh, what's going on in New York. Uh, would can you? Uh, do that now? <laughs> guys, if I could just jump in with the time we've got left, if we could just, Steve, Rick, just spend literally just a couple of minutes giving people sort of a view from 50,000 feet in New York City, and then I'd like to open it up because we've got lots of great questions. Uh, I will do my best. Uh, you know, it's it's a whirlwind tour. The, the United States declared its national emergency on March 13th. Um, the as of yesterday, the confirmed COVID cases in the U.S. is at 1.2 million. Just to put things in sort of a data-driven perspective, the, 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 the number of confirmed cases in New York State as of yesterday was approximately 320,000. That's a significant percentage of cases in New York, which is why New York is sort of dubbed the, the epicenter. Since uh, early March, our Governor Cuomo has issued roughly 30 executive orders. These are emergency powers that suspend and modify numerous laws. Uh, they began by reducing, uh, recalling for workforce reductions at work locations. Uh, New York State has been essentially on pause since March 22nd, effectively closing all schools and all non-essential businesses. What constituted an essential business was defined by the Empire State Development Corporation policies, uh, the, the usual things you would expect, healthcare, infrastructure, manufacturing, food distribution, retail, uh, all of these essential businesses were allowed to remain open only to the extent necessary to perform their essential function and all are and were subject to CDC-based precautions. Um, the state at one point has issued executive orders requiring face coverings. We've addressed that. Uh, the bottom line is the closing of the economy in New York State was abrupt and comprehensive. Uh, but all governors and all public officials realize that keeping an economy closed indefinitely isn't sustainable. So as of yesterday, the, open, the governor has announced how New York State will approach reopening of businesses. It will be nuanced. It will be phased. Uh, the latest New York State pause order is set to expire on May 15th. This could change because the whole program is subject to public health metrics. And New York State reopening will occur on a regional basis. Uh, that will depend on health metrics, priority of business, and risk to workers. One way to address risk is through the planning we've been talking about today. Uh, the factors, uh, I guess, because of the limitation of time, I will just uh, indicate that there is a fairly complex matrix in New York State. It, it, it takes into consideration numerous factors as to what businesses can open and when. Uh, a principle among the criteria is the need for, on a regional basis, a 14-day decline in regional hospitalization rates. Uh, I said that the uh, reopening process will be phased. There'll be groups of industries and operations that will start to reopen uh, on a schedule to be determined. As I said, the reopening was slated to begin May 15th. That initial phase would encompass construction, manufacturing, wholesale supply, and select retail. Uh, subsequent phases include uh, businesses that, I guess, uh, generally speaking, would progressively become less essential and probably, to some extent, higher risk. The priority in New York State is to reopen businesses that are 
considered to be essential and important and which are have lower risk to workers and the public. Phase two is financial institutions, retail, and so on. Phase three would include such operations as restaurants and hotels. Phase four, uh, uh, activities that probably encompass larger populations of people, arts, entertainment, and so on. So the timing of all of this is unclear. Uh, the uncertainty and frustration in the business community is really a product of the fact that you can't control what the public health metrics are. Uh, so what we can focus on is what we can control. We know in New York State, for example, that when businesses are set to reopen, the state has, Governor Cuomo has appointed two uh, former deputies to oversee a process of reviewing plans to reopen, the very types of plans presumably that OSHA contemplates under publication 3990. So uh, planning won't just be important for purposes of regulatory compliance, it'll also be important depending on your state on when and how you can reopen and at what level. So that's a whirlwind tour uh, there's a lot of nuance and detail that I've left out uh, for in the interest of questions. So take it away, Steve. Okay, great. So thanks so much, guys. Boy, we this is I, I, we've been doing these webinars now, fast and furious for weeks, and I've never seen this much audience participation. So the first thing I'm going to say to the folks that are listening is we are going to go past the top of the hour to make sure we cover as many of these questions as possible. Um, so I'm going to get started and. This is like that game show where we call it the uh, the lightning round. Okay, guys, you ready? We're ready. Here we go. All right, number one, there have been a bunch of questions about the OSHA posters, one called 10 Steps All Workplaces Can Take. What OSHA posters are necessary to get up right now? Well, I'll take that. Uh, basically, the general poster on covid 19 that has the all of the uh, you know the personal hygiene items and that uh, that should go up but I think that I think that uh, what really would be good is if the employers would look at their industry sector for example the manufacturing industry workforce there is an OSHA alert for that it's a one-page alert and it has um, about uh, 12 bullet points and it highlights the specific uh, hazards that you might have in a manufacturing plant uh, so that those can be taken into account. So I think that the poster is, is excellent for training purposes. Um, I think that, that the other training would have to be more uh, specific to the workplace. Guys, a lot of the questions are very, very narrow and specific, so I'm going to throw in that's, a couple for okay. fun. Yeah. Um, one of the questions that Christine has is, what do we do about common areas? How often do they need to be cleaned? Do you guys have any practical tips on that? Well, uh, I, Steve may have an opinion. I certainly have an opinion. Um, a lot of the protocols, if you, most of the states uh, that I'm familiar with now that are opening up, they, they have ch their own checklists, and they might be more extensive. Uh, and, of course, those have to be followed. But some of those checklists I've seen say that the, um, the employer in an office setting shouldn't really have break rooms as such or, you know, they should maybe close break rooms, that sort of thing. So I want to say that before. Obviously, that would eliminate the hazard. But if you have a break room uh, in which employees regularly go in there to eat, 
um, how are they going to how are they going to have a, a social distancing? You know, unless it's really a big break room. And we know you can't wear a mask while you're eating. At least I can't anyway. Um, and so I think the common areas, um, other common areas need to be cleaned daily with the EPA uh, list of, dis of sanitation agents. But I think the other common areas like we've always used, like break rooms and things like that, the employers are going to have to consider just uh, closing those and having folks, you know, eat at their desk. Well, and, and, you know, that's an interesting question because out here in San Francisco, tech companies are famous for having these lavish catered meals. And there have been a few questions on that. One of the questions being, are you guys recommending from a practical perspective that those simply just be shut down right now, given all the no. problems with people not being able to socially distance and wear masks at the time and it all being common area. What do you guys think about that? Well, I, I have, again, Steve may have thoughts on it, but I have specific thoughts. You know, I've seen um, uh, eating areas in, in workplaces in which they actually set up cubicles for the employees. However, you cannot have buffets, obviously. You know, so a buffet would be like, no, no. But if the employees are uh, served uh, with, you know, someone that, you know, like you would be served when you take out food. I mean, I, there's the folks that I see when I take out food, they have face covering, you know, maybe gloves, that sort of thing. Um, I think it could still be done, but it would just take some reconfiguration and putting up barriers. And in like manner, um, you know, if you did have a break room and you wanted to put up plexiglass barriers, but I, I think the most effective thing I've seen so far are the are the cubicles uh, where one employee sits there, and if they're clear, you know, you can kind of communicate with other people. But that's about the best we can do, Steve. Hey, Steve, yeah, I, maybe you I, can I, jump on this one. I mean, there are a lot of interesting questions. I mean, should we even be allowing common coffee pots and fridges and microwaves in offices right now? Steve, what do you think? Well, I, I think that um, I think that what the guiding principles in the OSHA guidance thus far, and again, this is leaving aside whether there are state or local requirements, but guiding principles in the OSHA uh, guidance are whether things are feasible and to the extent possible. When you look at the six-foot um, uh, spacing uh, uh, guideline, it's not absolute. I mean, I've had clients talk to me about this, and I, I think what employers should focus on doing, and I think what will serve them well if there's any sort of regulatory scrutiny, is to do the best you can and implement common-sense measures. Uh, I mean, you can take things to ex the extreme. Many of us have probably seen what the Wuhan province looks like now in the, in the uh, industrial setting. You have, not only do you have the cubicles that Bill was talking about, there are signs in the cubicles saying, finish your meal quickly and get back to work. Employers might like the sound of that, but you know, in terms of buffets, is that common sense? I don't think so. I think it's probably not common sense to have a situation where you're not just allowing, but you're encouraging uh, close proximity and possible transmission of infectious diseases. The restaurant industry probably doesn't like to hear me say that, but that, that's the whole point. This is a balancing act. There, is no, there are no hard and fast regulatory requirements yet. So I think that uh, 
employers are well served by doing what is practical, doing what makes sense, and recognizing that there's more than one way to get to a result. Uh, there are issues about how frequently you should clean things. There are also issues that certain areas don't need to be cleaned, you know, depending upon what the uh, uh, survival period is for COVID virus on surfaces. That could be complex. We know that it varies. So it, it really is something that needs to be considered on a case-specific basis. There's no one okay. answer. Well, Crystal's got a question from, from the beautiful city of Portland. Here we go. If an employee has an underlying health condition or compromised immune system and reveals that to his or her employer, then is the employer required to implement additional controls at a higher level in order to protect that employee? Who wants to take that one? Well, this is a, uh, an Americans with Disabilities Act question. This would be an interactive process that the employer would go through uh, with the employee to determine what reasonable accommodations uh, would be necessary, um, and uh, it may not even be a specific, uh, you know, because there are asking about specific uh, diseases and whatnot is really not a uh, something that we would advise. But it's kind of something that you could have a, a whole webinar on that, Steve. So I think those kind of questions really we could follow up uh, on those, but I think those need to be reserved. So Tiana asked a question, guys, what's considered an outbreak? Two or more, five or more? Any guidance on that? Well, there's no specific, uh, you know, I don't think there's a general uh, term. The CDC may have uh, something as far as an outbreak, but, but clearly if the question is, when does the employer need to uh, be concerned? And I would say when there's one, but one does not make an outbreak, you know. So the employer should be have heightened concern when there's even one case, but I don't see that as an outbreak. Um, but the question is, an outbreak would mean that there is some, to me anyway, there's some work-related uh, event going on here, not something that people are bringing in from the community. So you'd have to look and see, you know, if you're living in a community where there are a lot of cases, then you you know it might not be work related and it might it might be something you deal with differently than if it, it looks like a work related item. The other thing Steve, I want to lots of questions if I can jump in. There are about workplaces that are offices and we've got a lot of questions about not understanding what should be done on temperature screening. Are you guys recommending either because it's required by OSHA or using some common sense that employees be checked every morning with their temperature and if so how? I, I, my opinion on that is is that that if you're in a an environment uh, in which people are working in close proximity, whether it's an office, a manufacturing plant, a construction site, having a protocol to um, no touch an infrared um, uh, thermometer to check people's temperature when they come in and ask them one simple question whether or not since they left the day before they've had any contact with anybody that's known or suspected to have COVID-19. I think that is uh, currently allowed even though it would constitute a medical exam. So 
I think that that protecting your workforce, um, well, that's going to take a lot of time. That's going to cost money. We're going to have to train people. You know, each employer has to assess their workplace and how closely people really work and whether or not they think that's necessary. But that's part of coming up with the overall plan. And I just so, wanted to mention that even though six feet may not be mandatory federally, there are some states, even in office environments, requiring six feet or a barrier. So be careful about the uh, state requirements. Guys, a couple of really good questions that you haven't covered, which is the concern that people have. Well, I'll use my example. My law firm in downtown San Francisco, we're in a 24-floor building. We're on the 22nd floor. Maybe we can protect the people in our workspace. But what do we do? Can, can, what kind of obligations does the commercial landlord have to us to ensure that he or she's taking those steps in common areas, elevators, uh, the other floors where other tenants are, which obviously we can't control? What obligations do they have, and what rights do we have to, to insist that they provide us with their game plan as to what they're doing to ensure the office building overall and all the tenants on the 24 floors are protected? Any comments on that? Uh, I, that I varies can from state to state. Yeah, I, I I would agree with that. I I don't I am not aware of any OSHA specific uh, guidance on that. But 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 by the same token, I am aware that as, as you know, the buck stops with the employer. Um, whether your landlord has an obligation will be dictated by local and state laws and your lease, uh, which is something that might be worth looking at. But ultimately, you know, this is, a, again, a situation where geographically the employer's considerations are different. In New York City, where folks need to be in close proximity, and in San Francisco and other cities where you need to be in close proximity in an elevator, the employer should think about providing hand sanitizers and, and face coverings for that purpose alone, for going into the elevator up to the building, whether the landlord has... Uh, a corresponding contractual obligation to you or an obligation to OSHA is probably a secondary concern. You really, as the employer, want to look at this as a case where the buck stops with you. Guys, another question is, are private employers required to have a COVID-19 action or emergency plan? Is that legally required? It is. Well, it, it, okay. it, it will be, a, it probably will be required in New York State. That's a guess. It may not be called an infectious disease prevention and response plan. Uh, it could probably take different forms. But if an employer doesn't have any level of planning, uh, I think that that creates exposure under, at a minimum, for an OSHA inspection and, and a general duty clause issue. Uh, it, it, at this current point in time, I can't say that there's an absolute legal obligation uh, that's codified to have uh, an, an infectious disease prevention response plan. But to not develop one now and to not have one, I think, would be, uh, frankly, foolish from not only a regulatory perspective, but from a long-range business health perspective. Steve, a question was posed to you by Ralph. Ralph asks, Hey, pertaining to record keeping, how do we determine if a COVID infection actually occurred in the workplace? Well, that's easier said than done. As Bill was saying before, you have to have objective criteria and factors. And I think 
there, I know that there is guidance out there, particularly for frontline workers, that is uh, allowing OSHA to exercise enforcement discretion given the complexities of, uh, of causation and, and the numerous variables that could go into the uh, discovery of a positive COVID case in the workplace. I think um, my, my sense is that uh, illness reporting during the COVID pandemic will not be a high enforcement priority for OSHA, particularly if it's not a flagrant, obvious, objectively determined situation. I think that, you know, the, the normal elements should guide your decision making is it workplace related is not a question that's easily answered and frankly given the lack of testing in many areas you know you may, you may not even get past the first criterion of a confirmed case uh, followed by the issue of whether um, medical attention and, and time away from work is implicated i think because of all of those variables and because of the uncertainty um, it's it's probably not the type of thing that uh, a regulator would pounce on because there it, it's not you know a clear cut situation. Does that mean pay attention to reporting obligations? No, but you know it, taking it to yeah, I, I think that it's probably difficult to to have a situation where it's you know clear clearly a reportable incident. So I'm sorry that's. Not really susceptible to a okay. clear couple one. more quick ones, and then we're going to wrap up. Um, Trina works for a grocery store chain. She asked the question, so look, we require employees and customers to wear masks. Presumably, we're also staggering how many people can come in to our retail establishment. We've got plexiglass for cashiers. Any other practical steps that, we, that we're missing that we should be taking? Any quick comments on that? Yes. Uh, I would Go say – I would say – you know, uh, I'm sure they also have uh, distancing lines in the floor. Uh, I'm sure that they're encouraging their stockers to work off shifts so they don't they don't have customer contact. You know, so there's work practice and other controls that you can put in besides uh, doing um, the masks and the distancing and uh, working on administrative controls keeping certain employees uh, in a certain area of the store, um, all those can be used to reduce the possibility of transmission from a customer. And I'll tell you, uh, in your, when you're in an environment where customers aren't required to wear face coverings, I've been in those in the last couple of weeks, and not very many people wear them uh, compared to the whole. So, that's something that uh, retailers might want to, you know, grocery stores might want to consider. But uh, yeah, I, okay. One final question, and then we're done. Here we go. This is from Grace. Our entire workforce is working from home. We're lucky that we're all fully functional from home. Given all the precautionary measures that we need to be done, should we just flat out continue to work from home instead of trying to get back to the office? Should we only return when it's fully safe to do so? Our CEO feels, look, it'd be wise to let people return when we've got a vaccine. In the meantime, let's just work from home. What do you guys think? 
Well, that's that's certainly something that I think is on the minds of many employers and employees. Uh, I, interestingly, I was having a conversation with a client that is in the commercial real estate business, and you know the uh, the flip side of this is, will this drive uh, you know investment decisions and growth decisions in the commercial real estate industry when there's this this very question on the minds of so many employers and employees whether they need commercial space. I, I think ultimately um, it is very much driven by a capability to work remotely. In New York State, as I said, the initial executive orders uh, prohibited anything other than remote working for non-essential businesses. So to some extent, you can see this as a sort of uh, pandemic-proof approach, I guess. Uh, but by, by the same token, uh, will it ultimately serve your clients and your customers well? You know, it's not an easy question to answer, but certainly there's a social and business paradigm shift. Where it's going to go, nobody knows. Okay, Pete, bring us home. Thanks, Steve, and also to our other panelists for sharing their thoughts and advice on today's topic. If you'd like to connect with any of our lawyers on the program, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. There on the website, you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.